So as we begin, let's just think about this. How many of you have ever been on a road trip? Okay, good. And, you know, maybe you've been on the most important trip ever. You have planned it to the hilt. You've, um, you've packed all the things that you needed to pack. You remembered everything, right? You got the oil change. You got the fluids checked. The MAPS program is actually getting it right for once. You planned it to, for this route so that you wouldn't end up with a lot of traffic. So it's just clean sailing. You are going. You are enjoying everything. The tires have been um, even checked. And as you're going, and the sun's not even in your face for once, you realize that this little yellow light comes on telling you that the fuel is almost gone. Right? It's never, has that ever happened to you? Really? I mean, come on, you, you're supposed to be telling the truth today. But so as we as we as you look at the light and the light's telling you you know you're not as thorough as you really should have been, um, you realize something. There isn't a gas station for miles. Because you planned it that way. And, and as you get further along, it doesn't matter where you're going, it doesn't matter how well you plan, it doesn't matter how well you drive. There's only one question that matters. Will you make it? Will you make it? Right? Now, in another version of this story, there's a friend of mine um, who owns a Tesla. Any of you ever seen or driven a Tesla or know what I'm talking about? Okay, all right, good. So he's sitting there, and I'm from Burlington, North Carolina, um, by the way, and he's driving from Burlington to a town called Hillsboro. It's like uh, Princeton to Bluefield around these parts. And as he's going, he's thinking, man, I am good to go. You know, I can't wait to get home, try that new suit that I just bought. And it's winter, right? And as he's going, there's a traffic jam. And he's sitting there looking at his power, and he's thinking to himself, hmm, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I better turn off the heat. It was a cold drive home. I mean, things don't always work out the way that we plan, okay? That's not news, but that's really life, isn't it? I mean, you get a series of methods and plans and conveyances to travel with potholes, roadblocks, um, traffic jams, detours, collapsed bridges, washed out roadways, one-way streets, construction lanes, because you've never seen those around West Virginia, and of course, other drivers. And none of us travel this earth alone. None of us. But it doesn't keep us from trying and acting like we do. And one of the things that the pandemic, and look, if we're honest, any situation that we can think of, right, presents to us is this sense that there's only so much that we can control. I mean, part of the fear that ensued, right, with all the mandates, the health directives, even whether or not we should touch each other or breathe the same air, was how very much seemed to be taken out of our control. And we built this moral narrative on the value of taking destiny into our own hands, right? We talk loosely but fiercely about rights. But in all the me melee back and forth, rarely do I hear people questioning their own judgment. One of the prophets, okay, Zechariah, talked about the restoration of God's people. And he talked specifically and extensively about the enemies that had plundered Jerusalem and how they were going to fall, okay? And over and over there was this quiet refrain, okay, a call to understand how this was to come about. And unlike the conquests of Canaan and the Promised Land, this revolution 
would begin in the most important real estate that there is, the hearts of the people themselves. And so the prophets say of the coming revolution, this is Zechariah 4, um, chapter 4, verse 6, neither by power nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. By my spirit. You know, when looking at Israel's history, it's no wonder that they ran out of gas trying to do what God wanted them to do. They tried to make it all happen in their own power rather than God's. And think about it. That's why Jesus' opponents were so upset with him all the time. They were coming at him with their own thoughts, their own strengths, their own ways of doing things, and Jesus was trying to embody what God had been telling them all along. Over and over, he'd say things like, well, your faith has made you well. Why do you call me good? There's only one that is good. So when Jesus claims in the Gospel of John that he is the good shepherd, it's a wildly provocative statement, okay? Jesus is not only putting himself in the same category as God, but Jesus is calling out the present religious leadership as being hired hands with no investment in the sheep. Do you really think that set well with them? Of course not. And the people knew exactly what Jesus was saying and about whom he was speaking. But he speaks the truth knowing that it was going to get him killed brutally. Jesus literally loves us to death. So while Jesus really is the Lamb of God, come away to take away the sin of the world, he's also the good shepherd who doesn't offer his life mindlessly or to prove some point. Jesus simply loves the sheep, us, and thinks that they, we, are worth it. And y'all, if we're going to say that we're God's children then this is the attitude that God expects out of us for each other. Now, I will say that one of my favorite parts of youth ministry, which I did for 20 years, was talking about sex. It, it was. And look, don't get me wrong, all right? Some of the conversations that I had to have with the youth and their parents or caregivers were hard, uncomfortable, and sometimes they were just frightening. I mean, really. One of my favorite things to do was to, um, was to get the adults in the room and, and have them go through this list. I'd get the youth to tell me every word that they could think of that had to do with sex, and I'd write it down on newsprint, and then I'd cover it up, and in the parent meeting, I'd say, okay, y'all, this is what your children know. Yeah, they reacted the same way. And I said, understand what I'm telling you. I didn't ask them if they knew this stuff. This is what they told me. And if any of you don't know what this is, you need to be asking questions now, not later. We need you in the game. But watching our young people, okay, grow into their own sense of selves and finding their strength to respect themselves and each other, especially when it came to their bodies, was heartening. And it was hope-fulfilling. And one of the highlights was teaching them to really understand how the Bible talks about sex. When the Bible talks about sex, okay, one of the most important metaphors is the word yada. Can you say that? Yada. No, yada. yada. Like yada, 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 except it's yada. Okay? And that word means to know. To know. Any of you ever read a King James Version of the Bible? <laughs> 
It's a burden, yes, it's a burden. But, but, but I mean, but not just the King James, several other versions, including the Common English Bible, still translate it that way when it talks about Adam knew Eve, and she conceived, and they bore a son. You find it in the way that the Bible talks about the first family, but it's also in the way that God describes the desire to connect with us. God wants to be close. God wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And the language is visceral. It's uncomfortable. And it's really great. I mean, think about it. God doesn't just want a casual relationship with us. God's love compels the Spirit of God to be breath for us. From the very beginning, God put hands in the topsoil formed the human being, but the human being wasn't actually a human being, a living soul, until what? Until the Spirit breathed life into them. God's wanted to be close with us from the start and still does despite everything that we've done to push God away. God wants to sustain and to fill, to empower and to remove, to enliven and to heal. And this is why God's love, God's intimacy is demonstrated time after time after time throughout Scripture as mercy, as compassion. Now, one of the ways that we water this down in the church is this cultural phenomenon of being nice. Okay, We water down the entirety of love by saying that it's enough to be nice, to tolerate, right? Look, being nice is important. Okay, after the year like we just had, we could use a little more nice in the world, don't you think? I do. But God knows we've endured and we've continued to endure the travails of people not being nice to each other. But even in the midst of this, being nice, it keeps the focus on us. Am I being nice? Am I a nice person? And God's love requires something more from us. And what God requires is within reach. We can do it. What God requires, what the cross demands, what the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ represents is more than possible. God demands compassion. Look, just listen to the way that the author of 1 John frames the passage from the outset, okay? After talking about how Jesus proved love for us and dying for us, the author then says this, but if someone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but refuses to help, how can the love of God dwell in a person like that? And look, that may seem obvious on its face, but we all know that in practice we are consistently bad at doing this. Consider the problem that Jonah has with God's plans for Nineveh. Jonah says, right, in chapter 4 of his book, that he ran because he knew that God was going to forgive them. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, okay, Jonah is sitting there, called by God to be a prophet, and God says, I need you to go to Nineveh, and I need you to tell them to repent, or they're going to get destroyed. So what does Jonah do? Yeah, it's not just that he ran. He goes exactly 180 degrees from where he was supposed to go, okay? 
And then along the way, he gets in this crew. Um, there's a storm. He gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by fish. He gets spit back up on the beach. And he finally goes after all of that. And he says to Nineveh, so you're going to be destroyed, so you should repent. I mean, he just, it's half-hearted. I mean, it's hilarious to read if you really look at what's going on in chapter 3. But the people respond. They respond. And I mean, from the lowest to the highest, they all respond. They even made their animals dress in sackcloth and repent. This is how seriously they took the message. And how did Jonah react? Can you imagine? He was ticked. I knew you were going to do this. And, and I love this. In the Hebrew, he says, you are home. You're just a big pregnant woman. We translate it, I knew you were a holy God full of compassion. But he's, he's calling God names. And God's reaction is telling for us. God says, are you right to be angry? Can't I do with my mercy what I want to? I forgave you. Can't you hear God saying the same thing to us? The prophets, all those books that have a name in it in the Old Testament, were constantly calling on the nation to pay attention to this. The refrain is ubiquitous throughout the books, and they all say the same thing. Take care of your orphans and widows, or the nation will fall. They didn't, and it did. And we have a hard time with God's command to love. And it's not because it's a bad idea. We love the idea when it comes to us. God loves me. Isn't that great? We have a hard time, though, when it comes to certain other people, especially people who we feel don't deserve it or are ungrateful or are irresponsible or, well, I don't know, apply any descriptor that you want. I mean, if we as a church are going to claim that we are within God's will for us, then we must understand that love for us can't simply be a reaction. It's got to be an action, a decision. The only action and decision that matters. And so, look, let's just tell the truth, Right? No one wants to be hurt. Anybody in here want to be hurt? Anybody in here want to suffer? Wake up in the morning saying, yes, hurt me, God. Didn't you? No one wants to be taken advantage of. No one wants to be duped. No one wants to feel like they're missing out. No one wants to be left behind. But, the love, but loving the way that God wants the way God seems to want us to, it risks all of that. And that's why we let fear drive the train on our faith. We want to be safe, and we want to be at peace, and we want to be healed. We want order, not chaos, and we want rules followed, not broken. We want things to be fair. And that's why when we see someone on one of our um, on-ramps to the interstate who's holding a sign, asking for help. You ever seen that before? We look away or we stop short of asking first about their humanity. It's why we don't pick up hitchhikers anymore. It's one of the reasons why we've relegated God's command to love and turned it into, well, be nice to your neighbor. 
But our command is to be more than just a to have people as more than just a passing interest when it comes to our fellow humanity. Scriptures describe a God who wants us to risk for love. And if you don't believe me, just spend some time looking at the empty cross. Think of what God did to get there in Jesus. Think of what happened that day. Think about what happened after. The risking didn't end with the resurrection. It continued. And God risks death every day for us, literally. The death of our relationship with God, the death of our faith, the death of our staying within God's will. Jesus says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and we must consider not how best to stay safe, but what God is demanding that we risk for the sake of the gospel, showing the whole community our compassion. And it can't just be the ones that we pick. It's got, it can't just be the ones that we think deserve help. It's got to be anyone to whom God directs us. Now, I got to tell you, in all my time traveling around with my parents and siblings, um, with my dad's military career, um, it was great to have my family. It was like traveling around with a group of friends that I didn't have to go looking for every time we moved somewhere. They were already with me, physically, sometimes a little too close. And, and it was a base of support that I could always count on. I always had my family to fall back on. It didn't matter how many cultures and languages and customs and current events that I'd encounter because I had my mom and my dad and my sisters and my brother. And to this day, they remain some of the most important people in my life. And y'all, I didn't pick them. I didn't choose them. I didn't choose any of them. God chose them all for me. And not just for me, to be sure. God gave us to each other. Well, God gave us to each other in order to practice the love that God gives us. On my, des- on my best days... I remember well that my family is not an obligation, but a gift. And it's a gift that's meant to be opened again and again and again to the opportunities and the possibilities that God is trying to present to me. And so as I think about the many choices that I have in my life and the independence that I claim to enjoy, my family represents a stark reminder of what my prayers really should be. One of the mistakes that I think we make in our prayers in our Christian walk is that we presume our choice, especially when it comes to people. We assume that God wants us to have the things that we want. But listen, I didn't get to choose my family members. God does that. We don't get to choose what kind of gifts they will be. God does that. We don't get to choose whether they can actually be in the family. God does that. And every time Jesus says, asking you shall receive, it's not a blank check or some wide open faucet of anything in the world that I want. Blessings. I've heard preachers in other churches take some of these gifts that God has given and turn them around um, into some kind of a selfish pursuit. Even heard two preachers arguing about the fact that, that their, 
their Lear jets were getting long in the tooth and they needed new ones. And I kid you not, one of them said, well, I got to get a new one because I can't fly commercial. Well, why not? Well, because, you know, there are demons in all those flights. I can't fly commercial. Really? He ain't thinking about his family. He's not thinking about God's family. He's thinking about himself. We aren't supposed to be exclusive. It isn't about who we let in or don't. It's about who's doing the choosing. And it's about who set all this up. It's God and what God wants. God's preferences, desires, quirks, whims, all God's. And famously, God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's more than just making sure that we're okay. We're supposed to be going out into the world as Jesus was sent out into the world. But what does that mean? Okay. So our goals sometimes aren't, are at odds with God's. I know that's not groundbreaking news, but really we spend a lot of time and energy, our lifetimes, trying to get to a place of safety and comfort and perpetual lack of worry. And it's understandable. I mean, nobody wants to be in pain, as you said. And who wants to live frightened? Who in the world wants to be in constant or even occasional conflict? But the trouble with constantly focusing on whether or not we have nothing to worry about is that we run the risk of doing that at the expense of others. Whenever I pray for something I need, I've got to remember that God doesn't just want me to be blessed. God wants us all blessed. And God's inviting us to be a part of that. And that means thinking beyond ourselves. And thankfully, our forebears did that. So today, we want to zero in on this Acts passage um, from chapter 9. This is the story, really, of Ananias. This is Acts chapter 9. And we're going to be reading 13 through 16. But in the run-up to this, we got to talk a little bit about Paul. Now, I understand you guys have been reading Acts. You've heard of Paul. And what was his issue? Okay, and why was he doing it? Why was he persecuting Christians? He was a zealous what? No, 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 no. He was a Jew. He thought he was serving God. And he was going to do it till his dying breath. He even held the coats of people that were murdering somebody proclaiming Christ. He had warrants in his hand on his way to arrest as many people as he could find. He had all the authority he thought he needed in the world, including God's. He was on his way. He was God's man right up until Jesus said, dude. Why are you persecuting me? So Paul was blinded again. And while he's sitting there mulling over this encounter, this intervention that God has had with him, God then turns attention to Ananias. And I love this because this is, this is why we can trust Scripture. This is why we can trust the Bible, because it's real. God has a real conversation with Ananias and says, listen, I need you to go. And I need you to go and talk to Paul and bless him and receive him into the family. And listen to what Ananias says. It's, in, it's perfectly sane. 
Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man. Uh huh. People say that he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls in your name. The Lord replied, Go! This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I mean, that sounds like a, an even conversation, right? I mean, Ananias' concern is real. Our concerns are real. I don't want to be shot. I don't want to be beat up, mugged. I don't want to be taken advantage of in my relationships. I need a risk-free kind of faith. And God says, respectfully, no. If I have to take risks to be in relationship with you, guess what? So what does Ananias do? It's beautiful. And it is as much a profession of faith as me standing up here saying that I believe in Jesus Christ. Ananias goes to Paul, he lays hands on him, and he calls him brother. He didn't say, God sent me here to help you. So... Blessings. He called him brother. And then Paul was not blind anymore. Can you imagine our world if we actually practiced what God's been preaching to us? Can you imagine how much we could see? How much we could do? And it's not impossible. It is all within reach. And all we have to do is practice our God-given compassion. It's there for a reason. It's not an aberration. It's not there just to see us get hurt. It's there to help us understand just how big the strength really is behind us. The creator of the universe is our very breath. And that breath has a very simple proposition for us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't just tolerate, don't just be nice, but love. That means I must call you sister. I must call you brother. I must call you family. Not when I get around to it. But now. So let us not wait. Not another moment. Let us do everything that God has called us to do. Because we can. It is all possible because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of the Spirit of God. All done through the prayer that Jesus himself makes for us. And so our prayer must be your will be done in you, in me, in all of us called to be God's family. In the name of the one who makes it so. Amen.